Thank you, Andrew, and I will pray for Rory here in a second. I hope he feels better. Um, great song choices, uh, Wes. Good, good job on that second one. Both those songs, I was saved in a Baptist church. Ann and I were saved at the same time. I needed a whole lot more saving than she did. And um, those songs, like, they just remind me of salvation, you know, because all those songs I was, like, living really living those and saying, wow, that's so true. And um, I know I'll surprise you, but I was one of those very excitable new Christians, and um, it was just great to relive that. So thank you, Wes, and happy 25th birthday today. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Wes. Happy birthday to you. Mm. So you're glad you came already. I'm, I'm, this, this is a good, this group here is a great group to kind of look around because what you'll know is everybody that's here doesn't have air conditioner in their home. <laughs> so they came here instead. So um, there's some truth to that. So, But I'm not too proud. I'll take you here no matter what got you here. So, so that's great. Well, maybe we will go ahead and, uh, yes. It's your, it's your unbirthday? Uh, what is an, uh, what's, what is your unbirthday? What's an unbirthday? Oh. Yeah, we'll meet you out in the parking lot after. <laughs> and it won't be for singing. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for everything. As everything that we have in our life, things that we enjoy, things that challenge us, the growth, your word, your son, our church, our pastor, we pray for his family, Lord, as there's a lot going on there, as you know. We just pray that you give Roman and Nancy in particular the strength to help um, their mom through what she's going through and also that his father will be okay uh, with his wife not with him and that must be confusing for him. He probably can't quite uh, figure that out so we ask that you have compassion on him and just have him be at peace as his wife and companion gets better. We pray that if it is COVID, that it is uh, much more milder terms than some of the other COVID that's been going around. We also just pray that um, uh, whatever is ailing her, that you will give the doctors the kind of wisdom they need for a quicker recovery so she can get back with her husband. We pray that as we get into your word tonight that it honors you, that it challenges us, that it, um, Father God, reminds us that every time we have the privilege of being able to hear your word, that it is you speaking to each one of us, and that, Father, we will have ears open, we will have eyes open, that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us so that we can live a little bit better and righteous life. We can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, we seem to 
love sin way too much. And we just ask God that this evening you help us in that battle. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're moving right along. We're in 1 uh, Timothy 6. We're going to tackle the first half. And it just so happens that there are three subjects in this first half. And I was telling somebody earlier that if I were doing something like this for a Sunday morning, we'd probably make that into about seven different um, sermons because there's so much there. So forgive me, I'm zooming through some of the pieces, but hopefully I'll still give you something to think about and that the Holy Spirit can fill in the blanks for you. And as we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10, if you want to turn there, the three categories, I've been very, very um, creative and innovative on the title for tonight. Slaves, false teachers, and true contentment. You're going to find that's about as basic as you could be. However, that's really where we want to be. We want to handle those basics. I'm going to ask Andy to go ahead and give us the context. He's going to come up if he will. He's been so gracious to come up and read. If you'd read 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10 up here, Andy, and we'll, we'll get started. Those are right. <laughs> I hope so. It's too Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 10. And this is, a, again, the legacy standard I'm reading from, so it might be a little different from yours. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. But those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but having a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have, no, we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils, and some, by aspiring to it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some of you may not realize this. I know I've mentioned it before, but Andy can read to you every day on Spotify. Uh, he reads through the Bible uh, from start to finish, and you just go on Spotify. And what do you do to get on Spotify to get your reading? Search for the Daily Bible. The Daily Bible. 
And um, I have come to appreciate, uh, he, uh, I consider Andy a, a, a really gift to our church when it comes to, uh, obviously I love his Bible reading, so I have him do it each week. But also his teaching this morning was wonderful. And our teaching this morning by our pastor was absolutely wonderful. And um, that doesn't put any pressure on me because two for three in a day is pretty good. So we'll, we'll kind of go from there. But Andy, thank you very much. Yeah, that's right, I sure will. I will because um, we're starting late and I have a lot of information. So when you look and see I'm a little bit later today, let's just blame Andrew for taking a little bit of slack there. Uh, can we blame you for that, Andrew? Yeah. You're a gracious, gracious son-in-law. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the people don't have air conditioner at the time going, yeah, let's go on to 11, 1130. <laughs> you know, why not? Yes, that's right. They'll be falling out of windows tonight. <laughs> so what we do, we are coming to a, another part in this letter. And remember, when this letter is written, anytime he crosses a topic, there is usually, almost always, not always, but most of the time, there's a problem in the church with whatever area is being covered. And what's really interesting to me in this particular one is that when it comes to things like um, slaves, comes to things uh, like false teachers and contentment, those are actually three critical elements. And he's kind of wrapping things up. Then Paul is probably going, I better not go to chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 with him. We better wrap this up. That's biblical humor because they obviously didn't have chapters. But it is kind of his wrap-up here. But our current culture and definitions can cause confusion when we hear what Andy read and where we go. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time with that, not as much as I normally like to just because of time. So there are going to be some different dynamics in the culture of that day. But let's discuss and kind of really embrace this fact that slaves during Timothy's time have similarities to modern-day employees and masters as modern-day employers. Now, some people get a little bit worked up over that, but the fact is it's really true, and we'll discover why. We're going to enter this hot-button topic concerning the master and slave relationship. We can consider the topic contentious. Even today, we live in a time when individuals are trying to rewrite history because we had forefathers who had slaves and practiced slavery. Whether they're good slaves or not doesn't matter in their books. They just point and are limited in their understanding of what was going on. It's estimated in the first century when this letter was written, I couldn't prove it, but I thought it was a great percentage, so I thought I'd mention it anyway, that in ancient Roman Empire that roughly 20% of the population were slaves. It's a way of life, a way of life. So Timothy 6, 1 through 2, I'm going to repeat just the first two verses that, that we just had read to us, that all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard that their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believed masters must, believe in masters, must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good services are believers and beloved. 
teach and urge these things. When you read something like that, what was clearly going on is that there were slaves taking advantage of Christian slave, slave um, or, or uh, masters. And so what was going on here is Paul's going, that's totally wrong, shouldn't be happening. And it apparently was a problem within this church that within the church gathering they had this. And a little bit later we're going to talk about the challenge of what happens when you'd have slaves and the masters in the same congregation. What would happen? So for some in Timothy's um, day, name, citizenship, and social status was found in Jesus Christ. It wasn't found in their occupation. Now, we live in a time now where your occupation, we allow that many times to define who we are. Wasn't that way back then. Their identity was in Christ, and that was their ultimate purpose. And obviously, that's to be ours as well. It's important for us to acknowledge that God did not come as a social worker to dissolve the bond of work relations. That's very important because you'll get people under the banner of the church in the name of Jesus Christ saying, we shouldn't have slaves, and so doing some of the silly things we're doing as a society today because of that. He actually, Jesus actually came to strengthen that relationship. Interesting. Slaves were the employees who did the work of their wealthy masters. Just like everything else, believers are to perform all duties as unto who? As unto the Lord. So whether you're a slave, a plumber, or anything you happen to be, it's as unto the Lord. Now, there is Colossians 3, 22-24. I'm going to have quite a few verses if you are one of those that likes to Put them down. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Thank you, Andy. Mentioned that this morning a couple times. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What beautiful words. You're serving the Lord Christ. And we'll get our reward, not next Friday on payday, but if we do it right, we get our reward, our inheritance for eternity. Slaves are yoked to work and we're not to be idle. And this is something that Paul was pointing out. Just because you have a slave master who is a believer doesn't mean you can slack off at work. As a matter of fact, he's really saying you ought to even be doing better, although whether you have a believing master or not, you ought to be doing it as unto the Lord. Masters are to be considered worthy of all honor. That's what the verses read that Andy read. Worthy of all honor. That would mean slaves are to serve their masters with dignity, conformity, submission, and reverence. That was to be obeyed in the first century and in many ways, there are similarities today on how you and I should be in our workplace. A slave's obedience was a necessary um, participant of the slave was a believer. Why? Why was it so important? Because they want to make sure, Timothy said, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So what was happening is there are these 
rebellious slaves that, quote, went to church, but yet they weren't good slaves. Now, back in those days, people knew if there were good slaves available or if there were bad slaves available. They knew who they were, and it became kind of popular. Unknowing this is a good person, but if they ever become available, that might be a slave you want. But apparently, the believing slaves were not doing their job correctly. The word reviled means slandered. In other words, you're slandering Christ with our work if we are not doing it as unto the Lord. Slaves were not to carry out their labor in such a way that their worth ethic would actually be a defamation or smear the word of God and be a poor representation of the truth of God. Look, if they don't take it seriously that they're to obey their masters, if they are not good employees, who are they really smearing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Same with us. Obedience was not to be an option only if the master was kind and fair. And very consistent, I hear all the time how unfair work is for some people, and you, know, you just don't understand my boss, and this and that and the other, and my mind does go back to this. I kind of go, it doesn't matter. Because we are not, we are not followers of Christ if the circumstances are right. That's not how we operate. We operate because we do it to glorify him. But a slave's behavior was to be positive testimony of Christ. That dynamic still holds true today. This I thought was interesting. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, some commentators have proposed that the term Christian literally means, oh my, slave of Christ. I don't know exactly where they got that. I just thought that, isn't that interesting? We're slaves of Christ. This brought with it the concept of following him and obeying him completely. Not the parts we want to. My boss wants me to do 10, 10 things on this list. I'll do seven because I'm okay with them. It is not a coincidence that Peter, Jude, and John labeled themselves as slaves. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Jude 1, Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. They introduce themselves as slaves. Paul did it too many times. And another perspective from Paul is found in Colossians 4.1 and Ephesians 6.9. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this is not just a thing where Paul's writing and he's going, okay, all you slaves, get in line. What's really being taught in the Bible is that both sides have responsibility, and we need to keep that balance. Now, John MacArthur, I was hoping your parents are going to be here because they're going to say, I know they didn't know who John MacArthur was, but you've only gone to church there how long? Uh, 48 Probably 48 years at Grace Community Church, who will be joining us here weekly in another few weeks, which will be wonderful provides us with an excellent review and summary of nine principles of conduct for believers in the workplace for all ages. We all should listen to this. For once, John MacArthur was right. By the way, those of you who are owners are to carry out your work as unto the Lord equally. I thought I was going to get away with something. Since I own two companies, I didn't think I'd do 
obey this, and then John MacArthur messed it up and said, yes, you do. Number one, believers are to serve their employers obediently. They must dutifully and submissively respond to their employees' orders. I love the word submissive until the Bible's speaking to me. That's one word I don't think was meant for me. I think it was meant for all of you. But in reality, we are to be submissive to those that we work for. Not cantankerous, not moaning, not going behind the water cooler like they did in the first century and start, you know, mumbling about our bosses. Number two, believers are to serve their employees completely. They are to carry out whatever tasks were assigned to them unless so doing would violate God's law. That's our out. We do not have to obey our bosses. But there's not a period there. It's kind of like a dot, dot, dot. If we're asked to do something that disobeys God's law, that's it. Not the law of, well, that's not fair to me. That's an idol law. False worshiping of self, thinking we have things that we don't really have coming to us. Only way we're not to be obedient with our employers is if we're violating God's law. Number three, believers are to serve their employers respectfully. They must honor these, those God has placed in authority over them. I drilled it into our kids, and it's in my kids. We drilled it in them to be respectful. I could give you some really cool things that have come out of that for them. It's been good for them their whole life. But it's just not the way the world constantly thinks. We are to be respectful. Number four, believers are to serve their employees eagerly in sincerity of heart. There should be no day when we wake up and shouldn't be excited that we have the privilege of work. Work is a privilege. Look back in, in um, uh, Genesis, if you don't believe me. It was given to us in Genesis. And we should look at it exactly that way. We're the volunteer, we should serve voluntarily, not grudgingly. Never should we as believers say, I can't wait till it's the weekend to get out of this place. That is not being respectful to the workplace, it is not being respectful to God's truth, and we are um, actually diminishing our testimony. Number five, employees are to serve their employers excellently as to Christ. Number six, employees are to serve their employers diligently, not by way of eye service. They must not put on a show for the boss by working hard only when the boss is looking. Now, most of you wouldn't know this, no way, but I'm a baseball fan. And I heard a thing about Paul O'Neill one day, so they're out behind the spring training to have the baseball field they're playing on, then there's one in the back. And there's a veteran ball player, Paul O'Neill is new, and they're out there and the veteran said to Paul O'Neill, we better start running, we don't know who's watching. That's not how we're to approach our work. 
Employees are to serve their employers humbly, not as men-pleasers. They are not to show off by ingratiating themselves with others. Number eight, we're to serve their employers spiritually, doing the will of God from the heart. And finally, number nine, believers are to serve their employees, and you know that when you do it correctly, there's eternal rewards when we do it properly. Just like our men's Monday night study, we could easily fill many Sunday evenings bringing to life the slave concept in correlation to the Christian life. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read this book, Slave. Uh, I have a couple copies here. You're welcome to take these. Um, the reason why is because I'm not about to delve into everything that's in here. This book is one book that I would have to say changed my life because it kind of gave me a different perspective of slave and what it means in the Bible. And excellent, excellent book. Again, you're welcome. You're welcome to take that. So next, Timothy goes into the second topic of false teachers. Here we go again. That's what you ought to be saying right now. Gary, you've brought it up again and again and again and again. Well, when you get to heaven, blame Paul. Because this obviously was a problem. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to break our heart, by the way. When we hear a church is teaching something else other than what the Lord Jesus Christ taught, that's a problem. And the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That was 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. Should sound familiar. Andy read it. As we've unco uncovered in previous Sunday nights, we're particularly aware that false teaching was a major, major, major problem in the Ephesus church, and close behind was the problem of weak church leadership that cultivated the opportunity for the wrong men to be in place in teaching positions. It's causing big problems. Man's opinion are just that, thoughts that can easily lead others astray by evil thoughts and intent from the heart that many may or may not know their teaching damns souls to hell with their new and strange doctrines. Sadly, it's pretty easy to be teaching false doctrines, false truth, if you get away from God's word. It's the only thing we have that can keep us on track. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, deceiving themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan himself as an, is, comes as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds out of 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. This is really very, very serious. I mean, if you take this book and say how much of this went into false teaching amongst all the other problems, 
this majored in it. First thing you should say, what did we discuss when it came to 1 Timothy? It was false teaching. What do we look for in teachers, whether they're true or false? What do we look for? First, any teacher must be redeemed. Now, don't laugh. There are pastors of churches that are not redeemed. There are more teachers in churches that are not redeemed. And they don't have an intimate familiarity with Jesus' teaching and God's word. As a teacher prepares to instruct, he is to be a serious student of God's word. As he takes hold of ongoing learning and constantly diving deeper on the spiritual subjects that are being taught. I do training for a living. That's kind of my second, my second career. As you see, I'm very, very careful what I say up here. I write out the whole thing. Because I don't want to say something that's wrong. Now, it doesn't mean I don't take my work seriously, because I do, but I'm not near that careful. I can just expound on whatever subject is doing it. I can do it for hours with no notes. But when it comes to God's word, we have to be careful. A teacher who strongly defends the authenticity, inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture is a must. If you have a teacher that will not agree that the Bible is authentic, that the Bible is inspirational, uh, it's authoritative and inerrant. If the teacher says something different on any of those four things, you can leave but you don't have air conditioners, so don't leave right now, okay? Scripture is a must. Intelligence, good looks, and smooth presentations, all the things I have. That, of course, was a joke. But they are not the must-have list. But people are drawn to that. Nope, go for the character. Second, the true teacher is not to be full of himself and not impressed with his own knowledge. False teachers can have an overinflated sense of their own importance and profess to have superior knowledge, corrupting the doctrine of Christ. When you run into it, understand they are corrupting Christ's word. Conceit is not a Christian virtue, if you happen to think it is. Conceit is sin that eventually leads to tainted understandings and lousy application of truth. A teacher is to be constantly learning and always embracing godliness. That's what Paul is dictating. Embrace godliness. Not I'm a Christian and then live how you want to live. Although, in reality, if you're a true believer, you will want to be godly. You'll want to be obedient. Doesn't mean we don't fall. We need to remember that godliness in our lives by the grace of God and practice those truths through the power of the Holy Spirit. Find teachers who believe that. Third, a teacher is not to be established a culture of a win-or-lose argumentative culture. Teachers are not to frame notions of their own to their special interests or impose those notions outside of the Holy Spirit. Happens all the time. Turn on your TV. Look at some of those evangelists. But not for long. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says the following. That 
and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by their spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Man's invention of controversies and verbal banning usually lead to the sin. Watch this. See if this doesn't happen. It leads to the sin of envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction. Whoops. We read that. Didn't you, Andy? Higher criticism disputers usually fall into this category. If you don't know what I mean by higher criticism, these are the people that have every doctrine you can think or every doctorate you can think of. They're highly, highly intelligent on man's standpoint, and they are highly, highly ignorant on God's truth. Corinthians 2.14, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You were hostile to God. I was hostile to God until he gripped us, tore us down, built us back up. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And sometimes I'll have conversations with Ann about that, about certain people. I won't mention who those certain people are. But we say we have to remember they're unsaved. And we can't expect them to respect the ruling of God. What Andy mentioned this morning is the perfect way to get their attention, and that is instill the fear of God into them. Gary, that's negative. I love being negative. That's what it takes to get somebody to start really taking God's word seriously. That's what it took for me. That was Romans 8, 7, by the way. And a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. God's truth reveals sin. Provides a roadmap to repentance and places believers on the godly path of righteousness. No wonder why it's hated by many. I wonder why it's hated by many in the church. Amazing that there are some parts of Scripture that you hate because it goes against the lusts of our desires of our flesh. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Oh my, what a promise. We have the mind of Christ. As long as we're turning to his word, we understand his word, we know how to apply his word, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us forward. False teachers are deprived and have diseased minds. I feel sorry for them. I don't feel sorry about how they harm the church. I don't feel sorry how they harm people. Making those who follow them spiritually sick. I have the saying that goes something like this. You're going to be so glad I shared it with you. They, false teachers are so sick that what they do is they come and they puke in your ear so that you'll get sick too. You'll never forget that illustration. But False teaching and heresy continues to be a major problem today inside and outside the church. And by the way, we're promising God's word. It'll continue till he returns. That's why we are to judge teachers. By the way, 
judge teachers more so than the average believer. Don't worry, if they know scripture, if a teacher knows scripture, he already knows he's under what? Who knows what it says? What does God's word say? Teachers held to a higher accountability, right? Higher accountability. And actually exposed a false teacher who thought he could buy spiritual powers with money. What a great illustration. When Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay on my hands, I may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. What a great, great answer. I think we should memorize that portion of the verse and use it more often ourselves. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent. I love the way the Old Testament constantly was calling people to repentance. How often do we hear that? Other than here, we have faithful teaching here. Our pastor will mention repent. I'm talking about outside in the world. How often do you use it? It's not very popular. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Acts 8, 18-23, a beautiful portion of Scripture, reprimanding somebody saying, with money I can buy what God offers. So let's go to the third and the final major point for tonight, and that is true contentment. Boy, each one of us, if we all said, what is true contentment? We'd probably come up with different answers. Fortunately, Paul gave the instruction of what we're really be going after. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Really? Are we really? I know I'm not. I know there's parts of my life where I go, I'm counting too much on this thing for happiness or too much on that thing for contentment. Paul reminds us, hey, right here, you have food and clothing, you should be 100% content. Paul Washer, who's been in the most incredible jungles talking to some incredibly lost people, and he says the toughest mission field to be in is the United States of America. We don't know how to be content. Not without our things. He says it's easy to talk to somebody in jungles. They don't have things. One spear and a coconut. They have nothing. He doesn't have to worry about that. Here, oh my. And it begins with us. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge. Listen to this wording. Plunge. 
It's not sort of dangerous. Plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And boy, do we love to say, money's not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. And of course, I don't have that. Some people eager for money have wandered from the pace, uh, faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, the final grief being hell and damnation. Make no mistake about it. The love of money is to be addressed. The love of money is something that we need to pray to God for so we don't have that. And before you say, don't worry, I don't have much, Gary, so I don't have much to worry about. You have more money. I don't care who you are in this room. You have more money than I believe the number is 92% of the rest of the world. Let's first acknowledge there's excellence in contentment and evil is covetousness. So, shoot for excellence, being content with what you have. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Mark that verse down. Psalm 37, 16. What a, what a verse. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Do we believe it? The happiest people in the world are those who obtain the highest level of godly contentment, and all believers have this potential through the Holy Spirit. Contentment must come from principles of godliness. And by the way, that was Matthew Henry who said the highest level of godly contentment. That's true contentment. Remove godly. If you have any other kind of contentment, it's not from God. It's from things. It's from Satan himself. Or worse than that, it's from you internally. Oh, I have to ask God so often. I don't really ask him very often to keep me from the devil. I have to tell him to keep me from me, from my desires. I don't need the devil to sin. I can do it all by myself. Two uh, well-known verses fit in nicely here, and you know them. Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We are not to be in the pursuit for money. We are not to be in the pursuit of possessions. We are not to be bigger houses with air conditioning. If we have those things, praise God. But we don't have to have those things. That's not what is the motivation of our life. And by the way, the second one you know as well. This is Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's one of the verses I hate in the Bible because it exposes me. I go, that was written for me only. None of you can have it. That's for me. Because I sit there and I look at it and I go, my battle, I wish it was with Satan only or one of his minions. I wish that was the only battle I had. Oh, man. I remember when I was first saved, what, 40-some years ago, there's a book that came out. The writer wasn't terrific, but he was pretty good. It had to do with the battle for the mind. And I've been in a battle for the mind for the last 40-some years. A battle I never had. A battle I didn't have to worry about. And Paul here is saying, 
don't turn to things. Obviously a problem in the church. Must have had some pretty fancy people in that church. It's pretty wealthy people. Might have even lived in Rancho Santa Fe. It's not contentment. Those hills out there, Rancho Santa Fe, I love the homes, they're gorgeous. Do you know how many of those individuals are not content? I know some of them. Godly contentment is all the wealth in the world, according to Matthew Henry. Let me read it again. Godly contentment is all the wealth in the world. Period. It's all you need. That's it. That's the best. I dare any of us to tell God to his face that you're not content. But yet we do it all the time. Anytime we grumble, anytime we gripe, we're telling God, what you've given me, this circumstance, this item, whatever it happens to be, we're telling God we're not content. Learning to be content with whatever God has decided to give you daily in health, wealth, and other circumstances should be totally sufficient for us. If you haven't noticed, I'm getting a little older. I'm having to make a few more doctor appointments. Praise God for whatever health he's given us. Any wealth or lack thereof, praise him for that. He that is happy here on earth is sure to be happy in another world if we are centered on Christ. Don't sit here and go, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to be happy. That's code for, I'm not content in what the Lord has given me here. The news daily reflects directly that many can't bring contentment to one's life. And that's what Paul is saying here. When you, me, and others say, money may not bring me contentment, but I'd sure like to give it a try, really reveals our wicked heart. We might say it as a joke, but it reveals our wicked heart that we don't fully appreciate God and godly contentment that he offers each one of us now and forever. Think about what we have. You have eternal life. Name something better. How about a free pass to Disneyland? How about a new car? You have eternal life. Praise God. Praise God for that. And after 40-some years, I still, you know those goosebumps you talk about? Did you talk about this morning, Andy? I get them now when I think about my salvation because I was a miserable, wretched man. You don't have to shake your head, yes. Miserable. Wretched, and for whatever reason, and you too, if you're saved. He has grabbed us out of the pit of our own sewer. He's dragged us out, and he said, mine. Don't ever not be content again. There's nothing you'll receive that's better than that. Timothy and the church received from Paul that they need to discover the key to contentment rested not on the circumstances. That's where we fail so often. It's on circumstances. Well, you don't realize what I have to go through. 
I can't tell you how many men have said, you don't know what my wife is really like. I don't want to know what your wife is really like. I want to know what you're like. Our security is in one place only, Christ. Just like most people go through life searching for the magic formula that will bring them happiness and fulfillment. And don't tell me you haven't been there. We've all been there one way or another. If we just add this. And God is saying either no or not yet. And we're supposed to do this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. But more than here, we need to do it here. Psalm 16.5, another one. And by the way, I never use this version, but I'm going to use it here, the Amplified Bible. Psalm 16.5. I love this. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. My cup, he is all I need. How beautifully said. He is all we need. Before you go to bed tonight, thank him that he is all you need. Praise him for that. And by the way, really mean it. It'll change your contentment standpoint. When we fully comprehend and accept that Jesus is our only source of contentment, as the saying goes, we win. That's how we win. It's so amazing that our Lord brings us into this world with nothing Three times during a lifetime, our hands hold nothing. When we were born, nothing. We can't hold anything in our hands when we die. And people have tried, can't do it. The third time, and the most important, you had empty hands at the time you were saved by Jesus. Your hands were empty. For any of us that are truly converted, because we could do nothing, nothing, to make that conversion happen. I don't know, I don't think the Bible paid much attention to How to Ruin Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, because it always talks about how you build things up. Every time I open up God's Word, one way or another, I get torn down. And that's how we get to godliness. That's how we get to contentment. And that's how do we get to be obedient. Ecclesiastes 5, 15 through 16. Here you go, Wayne, just for you. Ecclesiastes. Huh? Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Let me give you a tough thing of what that means. They toil for nothing. Nothing. And if you don't believe that, think of the last person you knew, knew him intimately, and they passed away. Nothing. Everything that's important to them means nothing. Now, my baseball cards are going to be worth of some value to some of my kids when I die. You know what they'll mean to me? Nothing. 
I can't use those to get a higher place in heaven. I have some good cards, but not going to work. Anything that we strive for here, that we put value in, unless it is in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in between our birth and death, we class the sin. That's what we do a good job on. These hands are great at grasping sin. Paul is going, remember, your hands were empty and anything that you're going to take, but yet we still like to hold on to that sin. We cannot be poorer than when we came into the world. Yet those of us that find contentment in Christ have our spiritual hands, our soul, our heart, overflowing as the love of Jesus that saves for eternity. How can you put a price on that? That's true contentment. Paul was warning that many in the church, for all of history as well, chased for the devil's desire of having enough money that you no longer rely on Jesus for everything. Get aside, Jesus. Just give me some money. We're worse than Simon, who tried to buy some spiritual gifts. We'll push our Savior aside if I just had some money. Our lives need to be constantly evaluated to see the areas where we venture outside of Christ for comfort and satisfaction. Comfort and satisfaction to us can only come from Christ. That's it. I don't care if it's 100 degrees outside or 32 degrees or zebra. Those are the places, by the way, the areas that constantly need to be evaluated, your areas, where we venture outside of Christ for comfort and satisfaction, those are the places where Satan will bait his temptation hook in your lust pond. That's what he'll do. He'll take those areas that you don't address. Don't worry, he'll address them for you. He'll make them look like you've got to have it. It's an evil, horrible creature. We're worse when we fall to the temptations he puts before us because we have the answer. The answer is Christ. Stay in the godly theme, being content with what Christ wants you to have, not what Satan or yourself wants you to have. No, di no doubt, we'll likely spend time pursuing contentment outside of Jesus Christ. Consider the words of Agur in Proverbs 38, 9, powerful words. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, only needful, by the way, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Take this seriously. Think about it. When unredeemed man dies, he leaves behind everything he's accumulated for his happiness on this earth. He brings nothing with him to provide himself happiness for eternity. Not even your violin, Wayne although I love it. What a waste of time, energy, and allegiance that is all for nothing. Where are those areas where your allegiance, your time, your effort, your desires are apart from Christ? Micah knew the feeling in Judges 18.24. Here's what he said. 
You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? You took my worldly possessions. You took the things I wanted. What are those areas in your life? Ironically, Paul warns them that worldly pursuits, including money, regularly leads to man's spiritual ruin. So the very things that you desire might just be the thing that's for your ruin. Scripture paints the most closed and narrow-minded path to godly contentment. You know, I love it when people say, that, that thought that came out of the Bible, that's not very open-minded. I go, it sure isn't, praise God. That is not. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. So here's the question as we wrap up. Question for you, question for me. Are we committed in thought and action to the truth that his word is to be the obsession of our minds and desires? Are you obsessed? Are you obsessed in wanting to make sure that Christ is center in your life? Or are you letting something else push that aside? Am I letting something push it aside? Is godly contentment truly our pursuit, passion, and desire in our current life? Do we even think of it much? He promises us contentment. God promises us contentment. If you had a letter, not on Monday, because no mail would be sent, but on Tuesday, if you went in there and opened it up and said, hi, this is Jesus, you can have 100% contentment, just redeem this coupon. Boy, if we're saved, we don't have to do that. We've already done it. We've redeemed it. We just haven't redeemed it fully. This is an area where you go, have I really given my entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I just good enough on the outside for most Christians to think, yeah, he seems to be a Christian. I'm going to admit to you all right now, I think on Christian things all the time. I'm constantly having to battle and say, Lord, make your will and thinking the way I want to think instead of letting me impose my thoughts. Or is this Sunday morning or Sunday evening enough before we get back into men a money-making rat race? I mean, are we going, I, I was good. I went to church twice. I even went to Sunday school. So we can live comfortably as we wish in this hell-bent world. We spend the majority of our time at work. Can't wait to get more, more, and more. Truly, money can be the root of all evil, turning us from reliance on a great God. And here's where the problem is. Why is it the root of all evil? Because it takes us away from relying on our Lord. It takes us away from relying on our Savior. It takes us from relying on God for everything instead of just the things, well, God, I'll let you have these things, but I'll take care of these right here. Do we wander from truth in our daily lives, even in hidden areas we don't bother to identify? Do you have areas you don't even know? Give that some thought tonight. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, where do I wander? It'll surprise you. Paul saw God in contentment a bit different. Here's how Paul saw it in wrapping up. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Oh, if God could give us that heart. Doesn't matter what you get, what I have. Jesus is okay with me. Make me Job, if that's what it's going to take for me to become more righteous and live for you. Or sometimes you pray like I do. Oh, Lord, please make everything okay. That's not a relationship, by the way. That's not how you talk to somebody you intimately know. You say, Lord, help my mind get those thoughts that aren't to be there. You put in the thoughts that are to be there and help me live a life that gives me godly contentment. Let's not allow Paul's example from Philippians 4.12, which we just read, and his warning in 1 Timothy 6 that we've covered this, this evening, by without our reacting of falling on our knees and asking God to help us to strive to learn firsthand that godly contentment through Jesus Christ and his word is the apple of our eye. Amen, huh? What a gospel and what a savior we have. Shall we pray? Father God, we know that we have more times than not, we have feet of clay, that we love certain sin. We love, we ignore the stench of it. We ignore what it does to you. We ignore that even the angels will peer down and be disgusted with us after all that you've done for each one of us. We would pray, Father God, that those areas will become clear to us that you want us to dig in, find in our lives the true answer and not just a surface answer, and that we will not accept anything but excellence as we look for your will. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, I have some books here. Uh, a couple more. I, I thought I had more slave books. I would have brought only them. This is one by um, that pastor that your parents don't know. Hard to believe. It's a great book. If you haven't read this, it's a great book. But I will tell you a little something. John MacArthur now does not allow somebody like Thomas Nelson to print his stuff because they took over some of the control. However, it's a great book, and it talks about this is when the lordship of Christ became an issue with him. Well worth the read. You're welcome to this. And then this one is by Albert Moeller. Guy's way too smart. No man deserves to have his brain. But this is on the Apostles' Creed if you're into that kind of thing. And this was a pretty amazing book if you haven't read through this. This will get you thinking about um, uh, really our mission and who we are. So uh, you're certainly welcome to any of these. Are there any pictures of them? Uh, in, in the Apostles' Creed? No, but there is space. You can draw your own. So they give you a Crayola. <laughs>